Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be exploring Buddhist chanting and helping you understand how this practice can benefit your meditation practice. And as we get started with Buddhist chanting, let's discuss what meditation is, why we're doing it, and how Buddhist chanting can actually help us to benefit and deepen our meditation practice. There's essentially three poisons that Gautama Buddha described that we need to eliminate from the mind in order to reach to enlightenment. The first one is craving. The second is anger. The third one is ignorance or unknowing of true reality. You sometimes hear these described as greed, hatred, and delusion or unknowing of true reality. The meditations that we do are to either eliminate certain qualities from the mind or cultivate certain qualities of the mind. Breathing mindfulness meditation is designed in order to eliminate the poison of craving or greed, the mind's tendency to hold on, to grasp, to have this mental longing with a strong eagerness in order to hold on to things in our life, whether it's people or situations or jobs or income, relationships. It holds on to so many things. And this is what causes the mind to be discontent, is the mind's tendency to hold on, to grasp, to have this mental longing with a strong eagerness. So we practice breathing mindfulness meditation as described by Gautama Buddha in the Pali Canon in order to train the mind, to gradually train the mind through an active, independent, dedicated training session where we're moving the mind to a place where it can easily let go and it doesn't hold on to things. In fact, in breathing mindfulness meditation, what you're doing throughout the meditation is as thoughts and ideas, perceptions come into the mind, you train the mind to just let it go and focus on the breath. When thoughts of the past or the future come into the mind, you train the mind to just let it go and focus on the breath. And by doing this over multiple, multiple, multiple meditation sessions, you're accumulating this benefit of being able to train the mind to let go so that when things happen in daily life, whether that's you being sick, whether you're concerned about aging, whether somebody dies, whatever it is, the mind can be trained to let go. Whether it's somebody talking harshly to you, whether you see something that you don't like or you don't agree with, whether somebody disagrees with you and the mind 
doesn't necessarily like that. If you train the mind with breathing, mindfulness, meditation, then the mind can easily let go in those situations and you won't experience discontentedness. You won't experience sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, boredom, loneliness, guilt, fear, shame, shyness, resentment. All of these discontent feelings that the mind goes through is because of this mental longing with a strong eagerness. So you need to learn the teachings in order to apply them in daily life. And one of those practices is meditation, but it's only one component of what it actually takes to attain enlightenment. So Buddhist chanting is a way to help us move the mind into meditation and get this benefit of training it to let go. The other poison that we're working to eliminate is hatred or anger. And the way that we do that is we cultivate loving kindness through loving kindness meditation. Loving kindness is active goodwill towards all beings without judgment. And through meditation, we can actually actively cultivate this goodwill towards all beings in the mind, starting with ourself and then moving to all beings through various rings to the point where we've cultivated this in the mind every day for multiple, multiple days, multiple sessions and months and years. And then you can practice that in daily life where instead of being hostile or aggressive or frustrated or angry at people for not doing things the way that you expect them to be done, because those expectations are coming from the craving, rather than being angry or having ill will or hatred or frustration, you can practice active goodwill towards all beings in all situations. And in this way, if you eliminate this craving and this anger, which shows up in many different aspects of your life through various decisions that you're making, then the mind can gradually and slowly become more wise through learning the teachings of the Buddha to eliminate this poison of ignorance or unknowing of true reality. Some people call it delusion, where the mind doesn't realize that it's actually causing its own anger. The mind doesn't realize it's causing its own frustration. The mind doesn't realize it's going around and judging people, that its ego is getting in the way, that it's being hostile. The mind doesn't realize that it's creating decisions in life that are causing complications through your intentions, through your speech, through your actions. You need to learn the teachings of the Buddha in order to awaken to this mental state of enlightenment where you understand how this craving anger, and ignorance is affecting your daily decisions and therefore you're causing your own problems through the discontent feelings that you're experiencing on a daily basis. The more you learn and train the mind to eliminate these three poisons, then the more awake the mind is going to become and you'll gradually, slowly start to eliminate these discontent feelings getting to enlightenment where the mind is permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It's permanent, meaning your mind is never going to go back to the way it was. Because once you gain wisdom in the Buddhist teachings and you see how by you practicing things like 
right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, by practicing this entire Eightfold Path, your mind will slowly become more and more wise seeing how these teachings have led you to a point where you've eliminated the anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, and all the rest. And with this wisdom that you've awakened the mind, you're never going to go back to being the way that you were before, where you were maybe hostile towards people, or you talked unkind or unpolite or disrespectful because your mind has become so wise, realizing that you are causing your own frustration. And it's these teachings that guided the mind to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mental state, which becomes permanent because you now have the wisdom of how to do that. In order to start this path towards enlightenment, you essentially need four things. The first one is you need to have confidence in Gautama Buddha. Gautama Buddha lived 2,500 years ago and he awakened his mind on his own without anybody's help. And after he awakened, he spent the last 45 years of his life teaching other people how to awaken their mind. And if you've even learned just 1% of Gautama Buddha's teachings and they benefited you and they somehow helped you in your life, then you should have confidence that he was indeed enlightened, that he was in fact a Buddha, someone who attained this permanent mental state on their own, which means he truly understood the path very, very clearly and then he helped countless other people during his lifetime and after his lifetime through his teachings to attain the same mental state. That's what a Buddha does. They self-awaken and then they help countless other people to attain that same mental state through their teachings. So you're going to need to have confidence that he was in fact enlightened and that his teachings are beneficial for you to learn. The second thing that you need is you need access to the teachings. And I've made this really straightforward and easy for you in the book that I provide, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. You can download this for free, or now it's actually available on Amazon in a Kindle format, and it's also available in printed format on Amazon. So I've made this easy for you that you can have access to these teachings in order to learn and work through them in order to slowly, gradually attain the wisdom that you need in order to awaken the mind. The third thing that you need is you need access to what's called the Sangha or the community. You need access to teachers and other Buddhist practitioners because by having teachers and guides, you're able to learn from other people about how to progress on this path. If you just had confidence in the Buddha and you just had this book only, you wouldn't be able to awaken your mind because you don't have the guidance you need. So you need that third thing, which is access to a teacher and a community of people that are learning and practicing these teachings so that you can be guided to understand how to actually apply these teachings. You can't ask questions to the Buddha He's dead, he's gone. You can't ask questions to a book because it's just a book. 
but you need that third component, which is teachers and guides in order to ask questions, gain insight, and what they are practicing to help you along the path. And then you need this fourth thing. This fourth thing is probably the most important because without it, none of these other three actually matter. The fourth thing that you need is you need dedication. You need your own dedication, your own commitment, your own interest. Because even if you have confidence in the Buddha and you have access to the teachings and you have a teacher, if you don't apply your own effort, your own dedication, your own commitment, you pick up the book to read it. You decide to meditate. You decide to ask questions. You decide that this is a path that you're going to pursue in order to learn and improve the condition of the mind so that you can eliminate the discontentness eliminating the anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, boredom, the loneliness, shyness, the resentment, all of it. If you don't have that dedication, if you don't make the personal choices on a day-to-day basis to do your meditation, to learn the teachings, to come to classes, to listen to podcasts, to watch videos, to reach out to the teacher and actually access the teachings, you're not going to be able to attain enlightenment. So it's your personal choices that are going to lead you closer and closer to this enlightened mental state. And that would be your gamma, cause and effect or action and result. By you making good, wholesome choices to get closer and closer to the Buddhist teachings and and learning with a teacher, By doing that, you will see that as you make personal choices to learn, to do meditation, to apply the teachings in your daily life, through your dedication, through your decisions to do that, you will see that the condition of the mind improves, and that's your gamma. You will benefit from the decisions that you make. Gamma is essentially the result of your decisions. If you make good, wholesome decisions, then there will be good, wholesome results. If you make unwholesome decisions, for example, if we choose to murder, steal, have sexual misconduct, lie, or take substances that cause heedlessness, if we do these things, if we talk bad to other people, if we're hostile, if we're angry, those are unwholesome decisions. If we judge other people, if we have ego, if we choose to do these things, then they're going to have unwholesome results. And that's our gamma. But now you're in a situation where you must have confidence in the Buddha or else you wouldn't be on this live stream. You wouldn't be listening to this podcast. You wouldn't be watching this video. You now have access to the teachings and you have access to a teacher who's willing to help you. So the only thing that's left is your own dedication, your own commitment. So if you can bring that and you can develop that and make sure that you maintain that, then there's no reason why you wouldn't be able to progress on this path because you already have the other three. You just need this last one. So today what I'm going to be teaching you is something that's going to help you in your meditation practice along this path. And it's through your dedication and your commitment to learning and then applying the teachings that will actually help you. And it's those decisions that you make to do that that will actually benefit you and you will see the mind becoming more and more peaceful, more and more calm, serene and content with joy.
Buddhist chanting has been used all throughout history since essentially when the Buddha passed away. There is some chanting that was done during his lifetime as well, but here after his lifetime, we use Buddhist chanting for a long time to essentially memorize the teachings of the Buddha. In the Theravada tradition, which is the teachings of the elders and considered to be the form of the teachings that's closest to those that were taught by Gautama Buddha during his lifetime, his teachings are captured in the Pali Canon or the Pali text. It's a language that's no longer a spoken language today. That is the language that we chant in when we're actually chanting. And over all these years, 2,500 years, these teachings have been memorized in the Pali language and chanted that way. Today, there is no reason for an average practitioner to go out and learn the Pali language because it's no longer a spoken language. Even if you spent a lot of time learning that, your ability to actually learn the teachings, apply them, and then receive help from people who also know that language is very minimal. There's very few people in the world today that actually understand the Pali language. Today, we teach in English because that's the common language that the vast majority of the world understands. And that's essentially what Gautama Buddha taught. He used a language during his lifetime that was known by the vast majority of the people in the region of the world that he was in. So today we learn and teach in English so that there's a larger and larger and larger community of people that you can interact with and learn with and benefit from those teachings. But we still chant in this Pali language as a way of almost showing appreciation and gratitude to the Buddha. But what it also does is it also helps you to develop memorization. Because in addition to an enlightened mind being peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, an enlightened mind is going to have focus, concentration, clarity of mind, and deep memorization. You're actually able to have really good memorization. And this is one of the reasons why the Buddhist teachings were memorized during his lifetime. Nothing was actually written down. People actually remembered his teachings until after he died. Then a while after he died, they actually wrote things down. So an enlightened mind is going to develop this concentration, this focus, this clarity of mind, this memorization. And Buddhist chanting is one of the ways that you can do that is by learning the chants, it actually helps you to refine your memory and get better and better at memorization. And by doing that with Buddhist chanting and refining your memory, you can then apply that memorization skill and ability in other parts of your life, which you will find highly beneficial. So Buddhist chanting, there is no specialness about the words themselves in terms of if you say these words, you're going to instantly be enlightened. Or if you say these words, you're going to instantly eliminate sadness. It's not like a mystical, magical chant with some special powers. This isn't what Gautama Buddha taught. Although you may see this described in other places in the world, but it's not what Gautama Buddha taught. Chanting is essentially a way for you to learn this language, to refine your memory, ease the mind into meditation, because prior to meditating, if you do some chanting, it will help you to start being aware of the breath and aware of the mind. 
And those are two things that you need as you move into meditation. You need to start becoming aware of the breath and aware of the mind in order to actually focus and train the mind in meditation. So the way that I teach Buddhist chanting is as a way to ease the mind into meditation so that you get more and more benefit out of the meditation session itself. And then we use Buddhist chanting to ease the mind out of meditation on the backside. This is highly beneficial for you as part of your meditation practice. And Gautama Buddha gave us guidance during his life that he said, prior to meditation, we should set up mindfulness in front of us. We should set up mindfulness in front of us. Mindfulness is awareness of mind, having awareness of the mind. Because when you're in meditation, there needs to be awareness of the mind so that as there's thoughts, ideas, perceptions, as there's thoughts of the past or the future that come into the mind, with awareness of the mind, you can then let those go. Or if you're noticing that the mind is cluttered or stressed or frustrated or angry or whatever that awareness that you discover of the mind, or even if you notice the mind's quite calm and peaceful, that's good and an important ability to have as part of this path. In fact, out of the Eightfold Path, right mindfulness or awareness of mind is one of the major steps. It's step seven of the Eightfold Path. So you're going to need to build awareness of mind so that you're aware of that frustration arising so that you can work to eliminate it. Or you're aware of the anger and you can work to eliminate it. Or you're aware of the boredom and you can work to eliminate it. So prior to meditation where you need to cultivate mindfulness, doing chanting where you're leading into the meditation where you're becoming aware of the breath and aware of the mind, really helps you to start to get more and more benefit out of this meditation session. Because if you're outside, you're going around, you're doing different things, or you just woke up, or you've had a full day, and you're getting ready to actually meditate, you can't just plop down and meditate. I mean, you could, you could try that and see how it works for you. But probably what you're going to find is the mind is a bit cluttered because you've been involved in so many activities. So what chanting does is it puts this little buffer between whatever activities you've been doing in your day into meditation. It kind of eases the mind into this meditation session so that you can get more benefit from the actual session itself. So it helps us to become aware of the breath, aware of the mind, helps us to memorize and develop and hone our memory and ease the mind into meditation setting up mindfulness in front of us. That's why we call it breathing mindfulness meditation, because you're aware of the breath, you focus the mind on the breath, and you're developing awareness of the mind during the meditation session. As you do this more and more and more, you will accumulate the benefits of the chanting and of the meditation where the mind will become more and more trained to the point where you can actually control the mind. Right now, if you're still experiencing anger or frustration or boredom or loneliness, your mind is still untrained. You haven't reached that enlightened mental state where you can actually control the mind. The mind is kind of like a little bit of a wild animal 
or maybe a lot of like a wild animal out there in the forest just kind of doing whatever it wants without any training and that's why it just keeps becoming angry and frustrated because it's wild it's not until you bring it in and actually train it and do that on a regular consistent basis that you will then start being able to control the mind more right these chanting and this meditation it's not something that you're just going to do once or twice and see immediate benefits necessarily some people do see within the first few sessions but more likely you're going to need multiple sessions of training this mind just like you would train any animal right you can't take a dog tell it to sit and it just sits the first time and it's done and now it's trained for the rest of its life you have to do it repeatedly over and over and over and over again to the point where now the mind the consciousness is so well trained that you can then control the mind on a daily basis consistently where when something happens that maybe you disagree with or is not something that you necessarily particularly like you can control the mind to be peaceful calm serene and content regardless about whether you agree with what's happening or not now you might be in a situation where you have certain expectations or you might have certain things that you desire in life or certain things that you expect to happen around you and when those things aren't happening then your mind becomes frustrated or irritated right or you might be in a situation where something really wonderful happens you maybe get a raise or you get a new job or you get a new boyfriend or girlfriend or you get a new house or a new pair of clothes and the mind becomes so excited and elated and then after that wears off then the mind is maybe sad or bored or lonely so your mind is not yet in the middle and it's only through applying dedication to your practice that you can actually actively train the mind through Buddhist chanting and through meditation to then be able to control the mind on a daily basis. So I'd like to pause here and see if we have any questions on anything we've been discussing so far. So I have a question, David. I'm talking about training the mind here. So how do we know if we've removed attachments or whether we've just cultivated our environment and our lifestyle in such a way that we've actually just kind of protected ourselves from things that might come and disturb us and and how do we navigate that and how, how do we overcome those latent attachments if we don't know they're there one of the things to do is always challenge your mind always test your mind don't wait for other people to do that right if you've blocked people out of your life that you disagree with and they disagree with you and you only associate with people that are agreeable and you've kind of got this false enlightenment this false nirvana this little bubble that you've created you've got to get outside the bubble you've got to go places where there aren't people that agree with you you've got to go places and do things where it's not a normal part of your daily life and kind of test the mind i did this many many times where i would go places that i knew that i would encounter things that i disagreed with or they disagreed with me and see how you practice is there irritation that arises is there frustration that arises and if it does 
how aptly are you to actually cut that off and maintain your equanimity, your calmness of mind, your peacefulness. So challenge the mind by going out and doing things. I would say in today's world, it's almost impossible to insulate yourself from people who disagree with you, with social media, with work environments, with driving down the street and having traffic do certain things. It's almost impossible, I would think, but there's probably people out there, you know, I'm thinking kind of like celebrities or very wealthy people that can really control who's around them and what's going on. And they have other people working for them to go buy plane tickets, to go interact with different people. I think celebrities can probably insulate themselves pretty well. But for the average person, I think it would be very challenging for us to do that. But if you find yourself and you feel like your mind's been pretty calm and pretty peaceful and you're not experiencing frustration, irritation, annoyance, loneliness or guilt or boredom, all these things, then go do something outside of your normal daily activities and test your mind in lots of different situations because an enlightened mind will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in any and all situations. There's nothing that will disturb it. The Buddha called this unshakable liberation. He said the mind is unshakable. Nobody can shake it up. This is eliminating the discontent mind is that the mind is now unshakable. Nothing can shake it. So I think most people can certainly relate to how the mind becomes more unshakable through practice, how things that used to bother them don't. I think a lot of people might struggle to accept that it applies even to the most extreme discomfort, maybe even like physical discomfort. So, so how would how would an enlightened being experience, say, you know, something traumatic, like a physically traumatic, say, like a road accident or something? Yeah. So, if there's physical pain, an enlightened person knows there's pain. They feel the pain, but their mind doesn't become discontent because of the pain. So where somebody might have an injury in the unenlightened state, we might get angry, we might get frustrated, we might start using profanity to express our anger, our frustration. We might cry and be very discontent. We might think and fear that our life is going to come to an end, that we're going to die. There might be still fear of death. And this is what an unenlightened mind is going to do. And there's going to be a lot of you know, anxiety and stress, maybe even hyperventilating that they're injured. Where an enlightened person, they can get injured, but they recognize that it's impermanent. An enlightened person no longer is going to fear death. So if that situation is going to take their life, then so be it. Then they just know that they're going to die. And if they get injured where, you know, it's not that serious, then they understand that it's impermanent. And while they're experiencing pain now, there's no benefit to getting angry, getting frustrated, using profanity to people around them. There's no benefit in doing that. So why would you do it? So the mind can feel the pain and acknowledge the pain, but it won't become discontent meaning it won't be frustrated, irritated, annoyed. It just deals with the situation, recognizing that it's impermanent, and then implementing whatever solution it needs, whether it's medical care or medicine or a hospital stay, and it recognizes that that's impermanent. Even staying in the hospital, sometimes in the unenlightened mind, 
we get very bored, we get very lonely, we expect guests to come see us, we complain about the food, we complain that the service isn't so good, where an enlightened being just knows that all of this is impermanent and all I need to do is really sustain my life and I will eat whatever food's there. There's no sense in complaining about the situation because that's not going to solve anything. An enlightened being is going to look to solve problems. So if they see something that's wrong with their hospital care or with their food, they're going to find polite, kind, respectful ways to solve this situation because they know the solution isn't to get angry or isn't to get frustrated. That's not going to solve anything. Yes, I suppose they recognize that pain serves a purpose, but beyond that, it doesn't. It serves a purpose to let you know that something harmful has happened to the body. But if there's no attachment to the body, then why is there any use in being discontent about the pain? Yeah, it doesn't. Right? Yeah, it doesn't serve any purpose. There's no benefit in becoming discontent. And you know, once you progress on this path, you realize that you're the one that's causing all this discontentness. So why would you want to make your mind angry? You've trained your mind so well and you can control it so well that even in an accident, a significant accident where there's significant bodily harm, an enlightened being can control their mind to the point where they don't become discontent even during you know, extreme physical pain. An enlightened being never gets angry. They never get frustrated. They never get irritated. But the reason why they're enlightened is because they've realized through their wisdom that there's no benefit to do so. They've trained their mind so well that they can control it where they just never get angry. They never get frustrated. doesn't matter what the situation is. The mind is unshakable. I suppose when we do experience discontentedness, we can reframe it and see it as an inevitable thing we have to go through when we release an attachment. So yes, it's discontent. Yes, it's unpleasant. But if we frame it in that way and say, well, this is my attachment here, it's because I'm attached to, you know, uh, having a peaceful home to live in and there's noise outside and I'm getting upset about that. But we know that if we get through that, we're going to become less and less reactive to that thing in future. Yeah, the more and more that the mind recognizes impermanence, the more beneficial. In fact, Gautama Buddha described this as the very best thing that you can actually do during meditation is to meditate on impermanence. And that's essentially what we're doing when a thought comes into the mind and we let it go, or the past or the future, we let it go. We're essentially recognizing impermanence, that we are not the thoughts that are in our mind. That anger, that frustration, that's not me. That's not who I am. That's just the thought in the mind. So the more that you recognize impermanence, in your example where you've moved into a new house and you're expecting peace and quiet, but you hear some noise, what the unenlightened mind is going to do is they're going to latch on to this noise and it's going to think that it's permanent and the mind is going to become discontent and angry and frustrated because now I've got to deal with all this noise and oh my goodness, it's going to make my life so horrible, right? This noise. But what an enlightened mind is going to do is they're going to just hear the noise and be like, oh, no big deal because they know it's impermanent, that that noise isn't going to last forever. And even though on an intellectual level, we might realize that that noise isn't forever, but in the unenlightened state, the mind thinks that it is it, on kind of like a deeper level. It holds on to that.
and it doesn't recognize impermanence. The more and more and more you recognize impermanence and you just soak it into the mind, it's so beneficial. I walked around for weeks just looking at everything around me and determining impermanence and observing impermanence, whether it was you know, a car, an ambulance, a tree, uh, somebody brushing past me, somebody bumping into me, you know, just constantly, there's impermanence, there's impermanence, there's impermanence, just soaking it into the mind so well, because this is what the mind doesn't like. It doesn't like impermanence. It wants to hold on. It craves permanence. And this is the number one driver of all of this discontentedness. Because we crave permanence, we have this mental longing expectation that becomes sad or anger or frustration. But also when we get that new job or we get that new income or we get this new boss that we think is just wonderful, the mind holds on to that in the happiness. But then the boss is human and he's unenlightened. He comes in, he's a little bit grumpy one day and then we take offense to it. And now the happiness is out the door. So not only on the sad frustration, anger, not only on that side, but on the happy side, in the elated and the excitement, the mind wants to hold on to those pleasant feelings. And when those pleasant feelings are impermanent, but the mind craves them to be permanent, but they're not. So when they become impermanent and the mind recognizes that, then the mind becomes discontent again. And this is why in society, a lot of people are craving happiness and we're pursuing this happiness and we want happiness and everybody's just be happy, just be happy. Well, what do you need to be happy? Well, I need this much money. I need this car. I need this job. I need this. I need this. And the list just keeps growing and growing and growing. And even when you're acquiring all those things, the mind is only happy temporarily because the mind is happy based on some condition. And this condition is impermanent and the mind doesn't recognize it as such. So whenever something good happens in your life, not only when something bad happens, do you have to recognize that it's impermanent, like a sound and you disagree with that sound. But when something good happens, you can't allow the mind to drift and dwell into that happiness because if the mind holds on to that, then you've allowed the mind to go too far to one side And now when that thing becomes impermanent, because everything is, the mind's going to drift back to the sadness. So recognizing impermanence, you don't even allow the mind to get too happy when something good happens. Just, hmm, okay, nice. This is good. And then you just keep the mind in the middle. Because if you allow the mind to drift to either side, then there's danger. This is the words that the Buddha used is there's danger in allowing the mind to dwell in pleasant feelings and things like pride or praise. Sometimes the mind is motivated to do certain good things out of praise. It wants praise and it's just doing these good, wholesome things. And then if it gets the praise, it feels good. It feels happy, but then that wears off and then the mind becomes sad again. Or it does all these good, wholesome things because it expects praise and then it doesn't get it and then it becomes sad. Where in this practice, you need to do good, wholesome things. You need to make good, wholesome decisions just because it's the right thing to do, 
not because you have any expectations of what will come afterwards, but just because it's a good, wholesome thing. And recognize that the impermanent nature of the world is causing the mind to be discontent because it's unsatisfied with that impermanence. And we have to train the mind to recognize that all these things are impermanent. And if you're ever going to attain permanent, peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, you have to train the mind to be permanently content with impermanence, right? That's the only way you're going to get to a permanent mental state of peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy is you have to train the mind to be content with impermanence. And then once you do that, then nothing's going to bother the mind because it's not holding on to anything. So this is what the Buddha meant when he said they're not clinging to anything in the world. Nothing at all. at all. Nothing at all. You hold on, you know, even this cup that I just drank from, this is my cup. I love this cup. It's mine. Someday this cup's going to break. I'm going to lose it. Someone might take it. Who knows what might happen to it. But if I really hold on to this thing, then I'm just setting myself up for failure. It's essentially what you're doing. And this relates to something I meant to say in our last session on Sunday around death, because death is one of the hardest things for us to deal with in the unenlightened state, is if you think about this life as my life or my mom or my dad, my grandmother, my child, my dog, my cat. Well, if it's yours and it belongs to you, well, when it dies, there's going to be discontentness because the mind is holding on. But if you start to understand non-self, the teaching on non-self, that there is no self, there is no you, that it's just this physical body and this mind together, then nothing is yours. This computer isn't mine. This house isn't mine. These clothes aren't mine. This physical body isn't mine. I'm essentially renting this body is essentially what I'm doing. But if I have all these possessions, whether it's a cup or a phone or a car or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a job or a child, and I say, this is mine, my son, my phone. And of course, we sometimes use those words because we need to. There's no other words that are fitting to use. But if you train the mind to understand that it's not yours, it doesn't belong to you, nothing belongs to you, even this physical body does not belong to you, you're going to have to give it up someday. So by doing that and training the mind in this way to recognize that nothing is yours because everything's impermanent, then the mind has less and less of a tendency to hold on, to grasp to have this mental longing with a strong eagerness. So when it's gone, whenever it's gone, because we know it will be gone someday, whether it's our own life, whether it's the life of someone close to us, whether it's a certain possession or a job or an income, when these things are gone, the mind won't be discontent because you never saw it as yours to begin with. It doesn't belong to me. Nothing belongs to me. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. Thanks for that, David. Let's go to a question from Manal on Facebook. She asks, 
does one control unfavorable thoughts, anger, frustration, etc., or acknowledge them as they are when they arise? How can you tell the difference between control and suppression? What we call suppression, suppression of feelings, we usually talk about that in a negative way, that somehow that's bad to suppress a feeling of anger or to suppress a feeling of frustration. People have taught us that that's bad, that we shouldn't do that. But I disagree with that, and that's not true reality. If the feeling of frustration or anger arises or is starting to arise, cutting that off, or if you want to call it suppress it, suppressing it, go ahead and call it that. But yes, you should suppress that feeling. Don't allow the frustration or anger or irritation or annoyance to come into the mind. Allowing it to come into the mind is like holding a bucket of water and allowing somebody to put poison in it. We want to put the lid on the bucket and not allow the poison to come into the mind. And the more that you do this, you will learn through training that you can actually control the mind to the point where you won't even feel any anger whatsoever. At this point, it might be hard to have confidence in that or trust that that's the case, but I can tell you with 100% certainty that if you learn these teachings and you practice them the way that I'm sharing with you, you will eventually get to the point where anger will not even arise. But the only way that you do that is by suppressing it and cutting it off. Allowing it to actually come in the mind is not beneficial whatsoever. There's no benefit to allowing the mind to become polluted with anger. There's no benefit in it whatsoever. It's only going to result in unwholesome decisions while the mind's angry. So by cutting it off or suppressing it, that's the way that the more you do that, eventually you get to the point where you don't experience the anger whatsoever because it never ever arises. You've essentially uprooted it at the root. And the root is the craving, the anger, the ignorance, or unknowing of true reality, or the greed, hatred, and delusion. You uproot those three poisons or those three unwholesome roots. You uproot them and clear the roots out and now you've got fresh soil and the roots never grow back. The tree never comes back because you've uprooted it so well. But just like if you have a big tree in the yard, it's going to take you many, many days and months to clear out this tree and get all the roots out of the soil. It's going to be a gradual training. So don't be led to believe that this word suppressing feelings is a bad thing right? Suppressing anger, suppressing frustration, suppressing irritation and annoyance is a very good thing that you don't allow the mind to become polluted. Now, feelings of love and care and respect and appreciation, those are the type of things that you want to cultivate. Things like non-judgment, those are the feelings that you want to cultivate in the mind. You want to suppress and cut off all these unwholesome thoughts, but the wholesome things like loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, 
equanimity. This is chapter 13, the Brahma Viharas. Those are the things you want to cultivate in the mind and bring those to the mind. So now the mind is fully cultivated with these good, wholesome qualities. It's an interesting topic, this, because it, it goes against a lot of what modern psychology says. But I think that's because it doesn't consider that actually anger begets anger. Uh, if, if we allow the anger to run amok, we're actually training ourselves to be angry. What we really need to do is get to the cause of the anger, yes. the source of it, which is the attachment. Yes. That's the thing we're working on. Yeah, so when that anger arises or that frustration arises or irritation or loneliness or boredom or guilt, one of the best things you can do is look at what the cause is. Because if there's discontentness in the mind, there's always going to be some craving, desire, attachment that's causing it. There's going to be some longing with a strong eagerness. And if you're really angry and enraged, there's probably going to be three, four, five, six things that the mind is holding on to. You might be holding on to the self-image, to the ego. You want your child to listen to you. You have certain expectations for your child. You know, there's all these things. And when a child does something, you may become very enraged or, or frustrated at a really high degree. But the more you start plucking these things away, you can get down to one or two things that's causing the mind to be frustrated or angry or bored or lonely. And when you sit down with a calm mind and you investigate what is the craving, what is the desire, what is the attachment, what is that mental longing with a strong eagerness that's causing this discontentness, whether it's one thing or 10 things, if you uncover what those are and you identify them, now you can work to eliminate them. By plucking away these attachments, by plucking away these cravings, this desire, that's where it goes from anger to frustration to irritation to annoyance. And now instead of five things that cause the anger, you're only dealing with two and you're kind of annoyed. And then you kind of pluck it down to one. And now it's like, oh, I kind of don't like this. But then you see what that issue is. What that, what's that one craving that's still holding on? You pluck that away. And now when that same thing happens, there's nothing. You don't feel dislike. You don't feel annoyance, irritation, frustration, anger at all. But the only way that you get to that is that you've got to learn and you've got to practice and you've got to train the mind to be able to see very clearly that you are causing all of this discontentness. And it's only through training the mind that you're then going to be able to control it. And the more and more that you do that, you get to the point where nothing unwholesome even arises because you've cultivated the mind and you've trained it so well that it's unshakable. We have a question from Sobheep on Zoom. Sobheep asks, what is the Eightfold Path? What is the Eightfold Path? This is the path that leads to enlightenment. It's your life practice. In order to attain enlightenment, you need to fully understand the Eightfold Path in depth. And this is why in the book that I share that you can get access to in the links that are provided in this book, we essentially spend chapter four, chapter five, chapter six, and chapter seven all 
in some way related to the Eightfold Path. Chapter 5 is the Eightfold Path, but these other chapters relate into the Eightfold Path. You need to study it and know it so well and so deeply that it trains the mind to eliminate the discontentness. It's one thing to understand in the Four Noble Truths that we cause our discontentness and we can eliminate it. That's right view. But all the other teachings in the Eightfold Path, they are teachings that will essentially guide you in making wholesome decisions in your life practice, which is going to completely eliminate all unwholesome gamma, all unwholesome results. For example, let's go to right intention, the second step. Right intention is to have the intention or the thought of non-ill will, of harmlessness. So we need to cultivate the thought in the mind of non-ill will and harmlessness, never being interested in harming another being. Not just active harm with like a knife or a gun, of course, a lot of people have eliminated that. But you have to even eliminate like that little bit of sarcasm that some people have just to kind of like rile somebody up a little bit. Even that's going to cause harm to somebody else. And therefore, it's going to cause harm to you because they're going to start being sarcastic back to you. And now you're not going to like that. So you have to eliminate all harm from the mind, interest to cause harm. And by doing so, then your speech, going to the third step, where you speak at the right time, what you say is true, you speak gently, you speak beneficially, with a mind of loving kindness without blame, you now train the mind with right intention of harmlessness to speak using right speech. What words you choose, the phrasing, that's all up to you. But the Buddha gives you this guidance that by training the mind to speak in this way, you won't be causing harm to other beings. And by not causing harm to others, it won't cause harm to you and you'll develop better and better relationships around you. So by learning all the various steps, all the steps of the Eightfold Path, the way to extinguish all the unwholesome things that have happened in your life, all the things that are happening around you, all the unwholesome things that you're encountering are a result of decisions that you've made previously. And the only way to extinguish all those unwholesome things is to start making lots of wholesome decisions. It's like if you have a glass full of oil, the only way to get the oil out of there is to start pouring a bunch of water in there so that the oil comes out more and more and more. So by putting more and more wholesome decisions into your life and into your life practice through learning and practicing the Eightfold Path, you're gonna be making better and better decisions on a daily basis, therefore, you're gonna have better and better results. So the entire path involves things like right view, accepting responsibility for your discontentness, realizing that you cause it yourself and that you can eliminate it. Right intention, having the intention of harmlessness, non-ill will, having right speech, speaking in the way that I mentioned, having right action, not doing any bodily actions that are gonna cause harm, and there's much detail in this book of explaining how to do that. And then there's right livelihood, making sure that your job and your occupation isn't causing any harm. Then there's right effort, teaching you how to apply effort. 
and then there's right mindfulness, and then there's right concentration, which is where we're at today to learn Buddhist chanting and meditation. We're doing all of these things and learning them in a lot of depth over a long period of time and implementing them over a long period of time. All the relationships and all the interactions that you have with people are more and more and more wholesome because with this wisdom that the Buddha provides in the Eightfold Path, you're going to be making better and better and better choices of how to interact with people, how to conduct business, how to set up your living situation. Every decision you make is going to be based on these good, wise teachings. But the Buddhist teachings are just broad guidance that will lead you in the right direction. But he never tells you, you know, if you have a girlfriend who does this or does that, do this, you know, break up with them or buy them a gift or do this. He doesn't give you that kind of level of detail. You have to learn the teachings as guidance, implement them more and more in your life and see the results of how you making good, wholesome decisions improves the quality of the mind and improves the quality of your life. And one of those good, wholesome decisions is meditation, which involves chanting. Question from Mina on Facebook. Earlier you mentioned testing ourselves by being in situations that may be displeasing. Once we feel that we have cut off that particular irritation, should we be aware that the particular attachment can come back and we may need to test ourselves again further? You should test yourself multiple times, Amina. Never just one test. And also, sometimes actively testing yourself can sometimes have false results too. So you've got to actively test yourself multiple times and then be aware in situations where you weren't actively testing yourself. If you notice frustration arise, you have to be honest with yourself. This is where we, in one of the previous chapters, we talked about kind of self-reflection or analysis of the mind, being really honest with yourself that if you notice even the slightest annoyance and irritation, that you don't feel guilty or shameful that that's happened. Because sometimes in these types of traditions, people can make you feel fear or guilt or shame. That's not what the Buddha did at all, because our goal is to eliminate those things from the mind. He explained this as a gradual progression to enlightenment. So yes, test yourself and actively test yourself multiple times, but then also be aware that things are going to happen in your life that are going to not be an active test that just happen. And as those things happen, be honest with yourself about whether you actually felt any discontentness or not. And if you did, what was it from and improve that and just know that you're on a gradual path of improving. So definitely test yourself multiple, multiple times. I would say if you've tested yourself two, three, four times and you're not noticing any discontentness and then in the future something happens and you notice discontentness, that that craving actually didn't go away. It was still there. You just weren't aware of it. Or if it was a lesser degree, once you eliminate an attachment, it's gone. Just like these fetters, these 10 fetters. Some people say, well, once you eliminate a fetter, can it come back? And the answer is no. Once you eliminate it, it won't come back. But what happens is the mind thinks that the fetter is eliminated and it might go for six months and everything's 
find and then you notice, oh, there it is. The mind thinks, oh, it came back. But that's because you convinced yourself that it was gone to begin with. Right. So if you're noticing any discontentness or any cravings or desire attachment, it was never gone to begin with. It was maybe just a lesser degree and you weren't noticing it as much because once the fetters are gone or once these attachments, these cravings, these desires are gone, they'll never come back. A question from Jaroslav. He asks, if I know that somebody is suffering and I'm trying to help and the other person is not listening or making changes, I get frustrated. Then do I have to detach from that person or stop trying to help? For example, in the case of sickness or disease. Let's make sure you understand what an attachment is. An attachment is a mental longing with a strong eagerness. Okay. So if you have this mental longing and this strong eagerness to help people and they're not interested in your help, your craving, your desire, your attachment is that mental longing with a strong eagerness to help. That's what you've got to eliminate. You don't need to eliminate the person. That's what an unenlightened mind's going to want to do because the unenlightened mind has this hatred, this anger where it wants to wall itself off and it thinks if I push this person out of my life who disagrees with me and won't accept my help, then I'll be peaceful. I just got to get this person out of here because they're not doing what I expect. But that's not going to make the mind peaceful, calm, serene, and content because there's going to be another person who disagrees with you and doesn't want your help. But if you stay attached, mentally longing with a strong eagerness, if you still have this craving and this desire to help people and you're pushing your help on people and you continue to be attached to that, it doesn't matter whether it's person A or person B. The person A, person B isn't the problem. The problem is your mind has the craving. Your mind has the desire. Your mind has the attachment, the mental longing with a strong eagerness to help somebody. And this is where the Buddhist teachings are not about what's right and wrong because it's a very good intention to be interested to help people. But you need to be interested to help people. You need to be willing to help people. But if you want to help people and you have the expectation to help people and you expect that they're going to listen to you and follow your advice, this is the attachment. This is the mental longing with a strong eagerness. And it's always going to cause you to be discontent because you're never going to be in a situation where 100% of the people want your help or interested in your help. If somebody asks you a question where they're interested in your help, then help them. But if they're not interested in your help, then you have to be able to just cut that off and not have a desire, not to have an attachment, a mental longing with a strong eagerness to help this person. Because the more you push, the more discontent you're going to be. And the more you push, probably the more resistant they're going to be to your help. So you don't have to eliminate people from your life. That's not what an attachment is. An attachment is all in your mind. That craving, that desire, that attachment, that mental longing with a strong eagerness. That's the attachment. And that's what you have to eliminate. And that's what breathing mindfulness meditation will help you to slowly eliminate as well as generosity. 
practicing generosity. And when you notice you're becoming frustrated because you're trying to help this person, then you should recognize you're causing that frustration yourself because you want to help them so badly and the mind is pursuing it and pursuing it and pursuing it. That's why your mind is discontent. You're causing it yourself. Whereas if you ask the person, hey, I noticed you have a flat tire. Would you like some help? And they say, no, I don't need your help. Okay, good luck. I'll see you next time. Boom, you're off. But if you're like, no, come on, man, I can help you. Like, you look like you're struggling. Let me help you. You're sweating. You need my help. Let me help you with that time. No, I told you I don't need your help, right? There's just going to be this struggle back and forth. And everyone's going to just be getting more and more frustrated and discontent. So if your mind is having that longing, that strong eagerness to help that person, even though it's very kind and even though it's very generous, that person isn't interested in your help. So if you've trained your mind well enough, you should be able to just move on. But if you keep pushing and pushing and pushing, you're going to just keep being discontent and you're causing it. So Ethan on Facebook asks, so how to get rid of these things then? So the way you get rid of it is with breathing, mindfulness, meditation. You train the mind to let go of the thoughts, let go of the ideas, let go of the perceptions, train the mind to easily let go of things and letting go of thoughts of the past or the future. That's the one remedy that the Buddha gave us, as well as practicing generosity, training the mind to share. So if you have a bag of chips or you have resources that you've collected or you have time or effort that you can share with other people, by you sharing, you won't become selfish and kind of hold things so tightly. These are the ways that you train the mind in a daily basis to let go. And then some other things that we've covered in some other classes is I've talked to you about when you notice that your mind is discontent is sit down and reflect on that and uncover what are the mental longing and strong eagernesses that you're having. And when you uncover those cravings, desire, attachments, then you can identify it and you can work to eliminate it because you can just meditate for 24 hours a day for the rest of your life, but you're never going to attain enlightenment just through meditation. And you can go around and share with everybody and share your time, your effort, your resources, anything that you want. You could meditate and share all day long. But if you're not aware that by your mental longing with a strong eagerness, for example, to help somebody, you think that, wow, I'm trying to help this guy. He should take my help. Like he's the one who's wrong. Like I'm the one who's helping. You're just going to keep being discontent. So the third thing that I'm offering that I suggest that everybody does is when the mind is discontent, whether it's anger, frustration, irritation, boredom, loneliness, guilt, shame, fear, whatever it is, is sit down with a calm mind and reflect on what are the attachments that you're having that's causing this discontent mind. And that's where a teacher becomes very important in your life is that if you have a relationship with a teacher, then you can reflect on this stuff for a while. And if you can't figure out what the problem is, or you've maybe figured out two or three of them, and you just want to kind of check with the teacher, you can ask your teacher for guidance. And if you do this two, three, four times, eventually you'll get really good at identifying this on your own and you won't need a teacher's help anymore. But in addition to 
chanting and meditation and being generous and learning these teachings and practicing these teachings, you need to get really good at identifying these attachments, having the ability to know what those attachments are and then how to actively work to eliminate them. For example, say you're really addicted to social media and every time somebody sends you a message, you're like right on top of it and you're just feeling so happy that somebody sent you a message. And then when someone doesn't send you a message, the mind becomes sad or frustrated, right? Because this is attachment. This is a mental longing for something. This is a strong eagerness. Well, if you identify that and you see that craving, you see that desire, you see that attachment, you see that mental longing with a strong eagerness, it doesn't matter how much meditation and generosity that you do, if you keep picking up your phone with the expectation that you're going to have messages, then your mind's going to keep being very, very happy when you get them and very, very sad when you don't. So what you have to do is you have to train the mind where when you feel your mind pulling towards the phone is just leave it alone for several hours and don't pick it up. Don't look to the phone. Don't put your happiness, your excitement, your elation into this impermanent event because getting messages is impermanent. Why would you attach your happiness to that? So you have to actively train the mind in the opposite direction because this craving is going to want to keep pulling you towards the phone or it's going to want to keep pulling you toward the boyfriend or girlfriend or the craving is going to keep pulling you towards buying a new car or a new pair of shoes or new makeup or a new pair of sunglasses. Your mind's going to keep craving and thinking if it just gets this one more thing, that's all it needs to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content. It'll be happy forever if it just gets this one thing. So if you allow the mind to keep pulling in that direction and you give in to the craving, then you're not training it in the opposite direction. So when you feel your mind pulling towards the craving, you have to apply right effort, which is the sixth step of the Eightfold Path. You have to take the effort to move it in the other direction and actively train it to move away from the craving and chip away at it more and more and more. And this is your life practice. That's why I call this book Developing a Life Practice because you can't just meditate three times and you're enlightened and instantly attain enlightenment. That's one of the biggest misunderstandings about the Buddha's life is that he sat down and instantly became enlightened. You've got to develop this dedication that I started talking about at the beginning of this talk. You got to have this dedication to constantly learning, constantly growing, constantly understanding the teachings and constantly implementing them into your life over a long period of time. But as you do that, you will see the truth for yourself that it's working because the mind's going to become gradually more peaceful, gradually more calm. So you will know that your mind is working in the right direction. This is why the Buddhist teachings are not based on belief. They're based on truth. Because when you see the improvements in your mind, then you know that your mind is moving in the right direction. And for example, if you use chanting and you think that if I just chant 
I'm going to instantly become enlightened. Or if I just meditate, I'll instantly become enlightened. I just need to sit down under the right tree and do the, exactly the right chant and do this ceremony and I'll instantly become enlightened. If people think that and they believe that, it's never going to happen. It needs to be this gradual progression of learning and practicing the teachings, observing the results as the condition of the mind gradually improves. And that's your life practice. Thanks, David. We have several follow-up, follow-ups excuse me, from Ethan. Uh, so Ethan asks, why is there pain involved? Why is my shadow so loud? Why do I have to work so hard to get over illusionary things? And lastly, I can't leave weed. Why is my mind stronger than my will to breathe and meditate? This is the craving. This is your craving. Craving, it just has a hold. It's the mental longing with a strong eagerness. And with something like weed or cigarettes or alcohol or any of these things, what the mind wants to do, if you've made the conscious choice to give it up, is the mind thinks that you should be able to just snap your fingers and get off the weed. But this isn't how it works. This isn't how craving works. All of these three poisons, you have to gradually extinguish them. Craving, anger, and ignorance, or a knowing of true reality. Greed, hatred, delusion, or a knowing of true reality. You have to gradually extinguish them over time. So if you've made the conscious choice to eliminate weed, then you need to recognize that it's going to be a gradual progression of good, wholesome choices. Just because you've made the conscious choice to eliminate it doesn't mean the mind's ready to do that because the craving is deep inside the mind. There's this mental longing and strong eagerness. So if you're smoking, say, six bowls or six bongs or six joints or whatever it is a day, you need to cut that down to four and do that for a while and then cut that down to two and do that for a while. Cut it down to one, do that for a while. Cut it down to one every other day, one every two days, one every three days. And you have to gradually move the mind away from this weed because the mind doesn't like impermanence. So if you go from smoking six joints a day to nothing, the mind doesn't like that. It doesn't like impermanence. The mind wants to hold on. It craves permanence. This is the number one problem that Gautama Buddha discovered with the mind. So rather than jolt the mind that way and expect just because you made a conscious choice that it's going to be comfortable with this impermanence, what you need to do is gradually ease it off the weed. And that's how you eliminate things like alcohol or weed or cigarettes or coffee or any kind of substance that the mind is hooked to because the mind's hooked to it and the body's hooked to it as well, there's going to be some withdrawal symptoms. So if you ease the mind off of it slowly, you're going to have better results this way. And even if you are down to one joint every two or three days, and then you go back to two or three joints in a particular day, don't feel guilty. Don't feel shameful. Just stay focused on the goal. Okay, I had those two joints today. I was only supposed to have one. Okay, that's in the past. That doesn't mean I have to go back to six joints a day. Okay, I had my two, but tomorrow and the next day, I'm not going to have any. 
and just stay focused on the goal and stay dedicated, right? That's how I started out this talk is talking about dedication. This is why your teacher can't give you enlightenment. The Buddha can't give you enlightenment. This book can't give you enlightenment. It's a dedication to consistent good decisions over a long period of time. And that's the dedication and commitment. Not only dedication to eliminate the weed, but dedication to establishing meditation, dedication to learning the teachings, dedication to developing friends that aren't into weed so that you can be around good, wholesome people that are making decisions that decide to not smoke weed. Because if you get off the weed and then you go around people who are smoking it and you smell it, you're going to be more likely to get into it. So you've got to make many, many, many decisions, millions of decisions. And that's why your teacher can't do it for you and the Buddha can't do it for you. Why is this so hard? That was the second part of your question. The reason why is because we've all been reborn countless times in the animal world, many, many, many countless times in the lower realms, not just the animal world, but the lower realms. Think about an animal. An animal's consciousness cannot evolve the same as a human. They can't sit down and read a book. They can't watch a YouTube video, a podcast. They can't come to a class like this and learn and cultivate the consciousness with wisdom in order to attain enlightenment. Animals have deep, deep, deep craving. And some of them have a lot of anger and hostility and hatred and ill will as well. They have a lot of delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality because their consciousness can't even evolve with wisdom. So all of us, even though you may not remember it at this particular time, you've had countless rebirths in the animal world. Well, now that you've come into the human realm, your mind and your consciousness still has a lot of the qualities of an animal. This is why we become hostile. This is why we don't like to share. Animals get their food and they want to keep it to themselves. This is why animals have craving for sexual activity and reproducing. Animals have enormous amounts of craving. And this is where it comes from. Even though we're in the human world, our body is physically human. We have this consciousness of the mind, but it still has a lot of the qualities of an animal's mind. And it's only through learning and practicing these teachings that you will actively train the mind and cultivate the consciousness, evolve the consciousness to the point where you can control it, where you become essentially more and more and more human. So that's why when you attain the first stage of enlightenment, if you die having attained the first stage of enlightenment, you come back as a human because you've trained your mind and you're able to control it and you've become more and more human. If you attain the second stage of enlightenment, you come back one more time as a human. That's because you've essentially become more human. But this trait or this habit or this craving that you have for weed, this is the craving that you had in all of those different animal existences. If you continue with all of these cravings that you have in your life and you never extinguish them and you never learn and practice this path, then yes, you are going to be reborn 
down into one of the lower realms in your future births, and it's going to take you a long time to get back into the human world. And then when you do so, you're going to need to learn how to walk again, talk again, eat, take a shower, brush your teeth, read, write, go to work, all of the sadness and challenges that you've had. Sure, you'll have certain enjoyments as well, but you're going to have to repeat all of these all over again. Now that you're in the human world, you've obtained this human state. It's the absolute best, best, best place for you to be in order to learn and cultivate the consciousness and attain enlightenment. So now that you're here, the best thing you can do is have confidence in the Buddha that he was enlightened. If you've learned even 1% of his teachings and they benefited you, you should have confidence in him. You have access to his teachings now because I'm giving them to everybody at no cost. So there's money is not an issue. Some people make donations, but I don't have any expectation. I need help with donations, but I will teach you whether you give a donation or you don't. You need access to a teacher, which you have access to. So you have confidence in the Buddha. You have access to the teachings. You have access to a teacher. The only other thing that you need is dedication, your own dedication. You're eliminating complacency. Eliminate the laziness of the mind that doesn't want to do this, that it just enjoys the pleasantness of the weed. But then there's a lot of problems that come with the weed too and all the other cravings that we have. So when you start recognizing that this weed that you're smoking, while it may kind of make your mind think that there's some pleasant feelings there, there's actually a whole lot of problems that come along with it. And when you stop enjoying that and you start to work to eliminate that craving, realizing that it's leading to problems and you value this better life, this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy, a focused, concentrated, clear mind where you have great memory. These are some of the benefits of an enlightened mind. When you start appreciating and being interested in that more than this life that you have with the weed, now you can take active steps to attain that. But it's only through your dedication that you're going to be able to do that. Thanks, David. Ethan says thank you. And also, I'd like to ask a follow-up about Ethan's question about the, this shadow, this idea of the shadow side of ourselves. This is something that comes up in modern psychology quite a bit, this idea that we should integrate our shadow or get to know our shadow. I was wondering what your thoughts are on that, what, what Buddha might have thought about that. Explain to me what this shadow is. I'm not familiar with this. Sure. I understand it as like the part of us that is like the evil side of us. I think the idea is that we should like learn to integrate our shadow, that if we don't integrate our shadow, then we're somehow uh, more able to be vi victimized, okay. uh, more likely to be abused, so that we should not allow our shadow to run wild, but that we should at least get to know it and maybe use it somehow. I see. Well, the way I guess I would equate that to the Buddhist teachings is the way that I talked about of like reflecting on the discontentness, right? Like understanding why the mind's discontent, understanding the frustration, the anger, the irritation, 
by understanding those unwholesome mental states that we have or those unwholesome feelings, we're then able to uncover what the real problem is, is what's the craving. And then by understanding the craving, we can work to eliminate it. But I wouldn't say that that evilness is us, like what you described as like understanding the evil side of us. Thoughts in the mind, like like let's use these little boys that just somehow they came up in their mind, like it would be a good idea to get on a Zoom meeting and start talking badly to people, right? These are like unwholesome thoughts, right? These is someone who's not practicing right intention, someone who's not practicing right speech, right? So having these unwholesome thoughts, that's not them. That's not who they are. Those are just thoughts that came into their mind. And now the mind's reacting on those thoughts, right? But that's not who those people are because there is no, let's just say his name is Robert. I don't know. Hopefully there's no one named Robert on our call. Let's just say those kids' name was Robert. There is no Robert. That's just the mind being untrained it's like it's like the wild animal right i talked about a wild animal in the woods well what happens when you uh walk walk in the woods and you spot the wild animal the wild animal is going to be wild and that's essentially what we had here but that's not those boys those boys have the potential to be good wholesome individuals that make good wholesome choices but their mind is just untrained they're not practicing right intention which is non-ill will not you know harmlessness they're not practicing right speech you know so the mind's wild like a wild animal any unwholesome things that we did in the past we don't have to feel guilty about those we don't have to feel shameful we don't have to get in touch with them and know everything that happened the goal is to move the mind away from that in the present moment and train it to only make good wholesome decisions now got it thanks david mm-hmm. seems we have no more questions all right so let's go into chanting okay so i talked about chanting and the purpose of chanting is to ease the mind into meditation to start becoming aware of the breath aware of the mind and kind of ease the mind into meditation Because if you've been meditating for any length of time, you probably have experienced that when you make the conscious choice to meditate, even you make that conscious choice, the kind of the last thing the mind really wants to do is sit down and meditate. It usually wants to go in the other direction. Because as long as there's craving for other things, it's going to want to go do these other things. We have to actively train the mind to even have an interest or an objective or a goal to actually meditate and practice things like chanting. So here, this very first chant is the triple gem or the triple jewel. And this first chant is a very common chant that we use to kind of open almost all Buddhist events. If you go to any Buddhist events in the Theravada tradition. And one of the beauties about learning how to chant in the Pali language is that whether you go to Cambodia or Thailand or Laos or Myanmar or Sri Lanka or anywhere else in the world that is practicing Theravada traditions, they're all chanting in this Pali language. So you'll be able to join in with them by learning how to do this chanting with me here today. This first phrase, it starts out with, 
Right, and then we usually put our hands up to our forehead, or if you're sitting on the ground in a big group of community, they oftentimes will bow to the ground. This particular phrase is essentially showing respect and gratitude to the Buddha. Here you see the translation is the perfectly enlightened one is worthy and rightly self-awakened. I bow down before the awakened, perfectly enlightened one. Okay, It's important to understand that this chant was not created by Gautama Buddha. It was actually created after his lifetime a bit. He didn't require people to bow down to him or, or respect him in certain ways. That would be ego, right? But because of his knowledge and because of helping so many people to attain enlightenment over the years, more and more and more people did have appreciation and gratitude and respect for him for his wisdom and what he was able to share with the world. So we chant this first phrase as a way to show gratitude and respect to Gautama Buddha for his teachings. And remember, he's dead. He's gone. He's never being reborn. He's not coming back. So we're not actually praying to him with a chant. It's just kind of an acknowledgement of our appreciation. Because remember, we need to have confidence in the Buddha. The second phrase, Savakato Mahakavata Tammo Pamang Namasami. Okay, this is the phrase for the teachings, essentially showing gratitude and respect for the teachings. The translation here is the Dhamma is well expounded by the perfectly enlightened one. I pay respect to the Dhamma. The Dhamma is his teachings. So by chanting this, you're showing appreciation for the teachings, that second thing that I talked about. And then the third phrase, this is the community, the Sangha. So here the translation is the Sangha of the perfectly enlightened one. Its disciples have practiced well. I pay respect to the Sangha. This is the community, the people that are learning and practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings, we're acknowledging like, okay, this is a very good teacher, which is the Buddha, very good, wholesome teachings in the community of people who are learning and practicing his teachings. I show respect and gratitude to them for practicing these teachings. This is referred to as the triple gem or the triple jewel. These are the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha or the Buddha, the master teacher, his teachings, and the community of practitioners. We call it the triple gem or the triple jewel. And in order to attain enlightenment, a practitioner would need to have respect and appreciation for the triple gem, for the triple jewel. Because without confidence in the Buddha, 
without access to the teachings and without the community around you to support you in attaining enlightenment, you wouldn't be able to just go off on your own all by yourself and attain enlightenment because you're not a Buddha. So you need these three things along with dedication and all those things together, you will be able to actively progress on this path to attaining enlightenment. So this is the first chant. It's in chapter 11 of the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. I have the actual phrase in Pali as well as the translation for you there. I have recorded these previously on the podcast and in our YouTube channel where you can actually follow along and learn to chant this over and over and over as a way of leading into your meditation practice. The next chant is what's called Natmotasa. This is a very simple chant that you just do three times over and over and over again. And if you were just starting out developing a chanting practice, you may choose to start with this particular chant and just learn this one really, really well and then learn the Arahang Sambhasamputasa. Or if you want to learn all of them together and just do them every day before you meditate and every day at the end of your meditation, over time you'll slowly learn these more and more. The way that this one sounds is like this. Right, so this is essentially saying respect to the perfectly enlightened one, the worthy one, the rightly self-awakened one. Repeatedly, you see here referring to self-awakened one. That is one of the key criterias that makes a Buddha a Buddha. They've awakened the mind to enlightenment without the help of any teachers. That's how we know a Buddha becomes a Buddha. And the last one that existed in the world that is known throughout the world existed 2,500 years ago. Everybody else is going to need teachers and guides in order to help you to attain enlightenment. A Buddha not only is going to self-awaken, but they're going to then lead countless other people to awakening of the mind through the teachings that they discovered in their own self-awakening. The last chant that I teach, it's a third chant. It's called Itipiso. Okay, this one is a little bit more involved with a little bit more syllables, a little bit more language to actually learn. So this one usually takes a little bit more challenging to learn, but uh, you can learn it. And it sounds like this. Itipiso mahakawa Arahang Sammasamhoto Vichacharanang Samhuno 
सखातोरोगावितु That's the point where you would normally then slip into meditation. What ETP so this entire chant, the translation of it, is he is the perfectly enlightened one, a worthy one, a rightly self-awakened one, consumerate in knowledge and conduct. In other words, he has great wisdom in his practice. He has great wisdom or knowledge in his conduct. The way that he conducts himself in normal everyday life is consumerate, morally right and wholesome. One who has gone the good way right? He's gone the good way. He's gone in the wholesome direction towards the light. Knower of the worlds. This is knower of the five realms, the heavenly realm, human realm, animal realm, the afflicted spirits realm in hell. He actually talked about these various realms because he had experienced them. In the Buddhist teachings, the heavenly realm isn't the ultimate goal. Those beings are actually reborn. They're still existing in the heavenly realm. And they can attain enlightenment from that realm or they can actually fall down into one of the other realms. So the goal isn't the heavenly realm, but the Buddha actually experienced these five realms and is how he knew about them and why he was able to explain them to us. And you can actually experience these too. The more your mind becomes enlightened, you may actually have memories of these realms. So that's why we say knower of the worlds. And now it's the last phrase is unexcelled trainer of those who can be taught. Essentially those who choose to be taught, right? This goes back to one of the questions we had during the class is helping people who don't want our help or who aren't interested in our help. It's those who can be taught those who are interested to be taught, those who choose to be taught. Gautama Buddhist, he is an unexcelled trainer of those who can be taught, those who choose to be taught. Teacher of human and divine beings. There's stories of Gautama Buddha actually teaching in the heavenly realm as well. I don't know how accurate these are because sometimes when you've got 2,500 years worth of history, the impermanent nature of the teachings and what's being shared, sometimes people embellish on the stories. I don't know that Gautama Buddha literally did that. He may have, but I don't have evidence of that. So this could just be a little bit of an embellishment. And then of course, the last part here is awakened and perfectly enlightened. The reason why we call him perfectly enlightened is because he didn't have any other teachers or guides to help him attain enlightenment. He discovered the path on his own. So therefore, he wasn't holding on to any residual information that would be misleading. Other people after the Buddha who became enlightened, especially nowadays, people sometimes hold on to kind of miscellaneous information that doesn't truly lead to awakening. 
that isn't truly part of the path. Only someone who's self-awakened, they are going to realize certain teachings, see if that improves the condition of their mind and actually improves their practice. And if their condition of their mind improves, a Buddha knows that that's part of the path. If that particular thing doesn't contribute to the liberation of their mind, then they let it go. So by the time a Buddha is awakened, they're perfectly enlightened. They're self-awakened, perfectly enlightened. They know the path so very clearly and so well. That's why we call him the perfectly enlightened one or the fully perfectly enlightened one. That's what a Buddha is, fully perfectly enlightened. Okay, so what I suggest for you is that you learn these three chants, that you use the book, chapter 11, because in there you will actually see the chants. And if it helps you to actually make something like this, I made like a laminated sheet that I use in classes when I teach students, where you can easily look at it and actually chant it, rather than maybe trying to hold a book open to chant, you can you know, make a copy of this. I will put this file into our Facebook group so that you can download it and actually print it and then take it and laminate it if you like. And when I post that in there, you can share it with whomever that you like. And maybe this is kind of like an easy reference sheet that you can use where uh, it makes it really easy for you to see it before and after meditation. And what you'll notice is the more you practice these chants, it'll ease the mind into meditation and it'll ease the mind out of meditation. One of the things that I noticed early on is that my mind was so cluttered and had so much chatter that meditating daily, it was oftentimes challenging for me to observe changes in the mind, especially because when I first started out, I wasn't doing this you know, in the way that would really lead to an enlightened mind. I was just doing whatever I thought was best. So early in practice, it's sometimes a little bit challenging to see the benefit or the improvements of meditation. But if you learn chanting, one of the things that I noticed is it was a nice motivator and an encouragement for me to see that every time I chanted, I got a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better because my memorization got a little bit better and a little bit better. The audible sound of the chanting got a little bit better and a little bit better. And by applying dedication to learning these chants, now when I do chant, I can hear those chants and it calms the mind and settles the mind, setting up mindfulness in front of me to ease down into meditation and then bring me back out. And I use this not only for myself during my own private meditation sessions, but when I'm teaching students, I also chant prior to meditation and after meditation. And it really benefits the students as well, and they really like it as well. So by applying some dedication and some commitment to learning and practicing something like chanting, by making those good, wholesome choices, the more you do this, then slowly you will get the benefits of having done so. And that's one of the beautiful things about making the decisions to walk in this direction is that you're able to then use it as a tool because this chanting, picking it up now is like the first time you picked up a hammer 
You don't really know what to do with it. You don't really know how it works very well. You certainly couldn't go out and build a house with that hammer the first time you pick it up. So the first time you pick up these chants, it's going to feel awkward. It's going to feel strange. It's, you're going to mess it up. You're not going to say it exactly well. But the more you work with that tool, the more it becomes useful to you. So the more people use this hammer or use this tool, the more skill, the more ability they will have to actually have it benefit you in daily life. And that's how people go out and build houses. They gradually learn how to use this tool of a hammer or other tools. And then over time, they acquire the ability to do something like building a house. So as you pick up the chance, the first time, the first 10 times, the first 100 times, the first thousand times, it might feel a little awkward or feel a little bit strange. But if you keep with that dedication and that commitment, over time, it will gradually improve. What questions do you guys have for me? Thanks, David. No questions at this time. Okay. If that's the case, then I will wish all of you to be well. So I wish you and everyone else in the world a lot of peace, to be safe, to be well and to be free of discontentness and the suffering that it causes. So may you be well. Until next time, take care and we'll see you on our next class session. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.